0: Head to the slash merch.
1: Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today.
0: And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
1: Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered.
0: Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations.
1: In Season 6, our Disease Films series had adaptations like The Omega Man based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness.
0: I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega
1: Man. Well, what about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit. Some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material?
0: Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough?
1: Our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane.
0: Are you calling Betty Davis big?
1: Only in personality and force. She is
0: a force to be reckoned with.
1: We talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian.
0: We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous
1: movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material.
0: Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short
1: stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all
0: these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the
1: show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreelcom slash originals and start your next read today.
0: This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson.
1: Hey, hey, hey.
0: And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, number two of our series on Melissa Matheson, the Scribbler, with her uh, film she she made for uh, she wrote for Steven Spielberg, 1982's E.T., The Extraterrestrial. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook, at the next reel
1: and if you are a regular listener of the show and you're interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great films please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the next reel
0: we got a blot spot Andy friend of the show Ben Lott has written in with his rebound on the black stallion
1: yes he did A beautiful piece of filmmaking. I love how it's almost a silent film for long stretches, and they allow the visuals to tell the story. I have some issues with it, but in general, I find the charm outweighs the flaws. Your rank 58, my rank 57. Mm. Pretty close there.
0: Yeah, almost a perfect blot.
1: Almost. We haven't had one of those in... I think we've only had one of those, right?
0: I think we've had one of those, yeah.
1: It's hard to find those anymore.
0: That's perfect blots. It is. Anyhow, Andy, it's time... Let's do trailers.
1: So my trailer, Pete, is a, a, a kind of a little indie film from uh, Fox Searchlight called Patty Cakes. Cakes with a dollar sign for the S, because Patty <laughs> Cakes... <laughs> Patty Cakes is a story about uh, an aspiring rapper named uh, Patricia Dombrowski, aka Killa P, aka Patty Cakes, who is, uh, according to IMD, IMDb, who's fighting an unlikely quest for glory in her downtrodden hometown in New Jersey. This is a uh, really interesting looking um, uh, kind of indie. Character story, kind of a musical character story of this, of this young girl who just is living this kind of a down and out life, uh, just kind of rough, and uh, doesn't seem like she gets a lot of support from her. uh, Seems to be a single mom. And she wants to be a rap star, and you get these glimpses of her and how it really lifts her spirits and kind of helps her soul soar when she does these little rap competitions. And she she connects with the right friends. It looks like I'm guessing her grandmother kind of uh, kicks in as one of her supporters, and uh, she kind of you know has this kind of glow and this uh, this growing presence as the as the trailer goes along. Um, you know, I loved Eight Mile. I loved kind of that journey that uh, Eminem's character uh, Rabbit took through that film. This is another of those musical uh, rap films of a character who's down and out and trying to find a way through that and uses rap to to do so. and I just love everything about it. The trailer just gets me it makes me happy. it just makes me excited. Um, I'm really excited to see this one. I don't know anything about Jeremy Gasper, the writer director but um uh you know from what i see here it's definitely something uh, that uh i want to check out and hopefully uh will enjoy quite a bit what do you think of this one
0: um i it totally surprised me uh like out of the blue surprised me i i think i I've, I've heard mention a red mention of the film uh you know in, in uh, somewhere online never really gave it much thought uh this is um, not the movie I expected, and the trailer I found compelling in and of itself. I, I, it is a, a perfect introduction to the story and the character. Uh, it does everything a trailer needs to do. It makes me want to learn more about this space that this woman inhabits and the transformation that you know her her rap allows her to achieve. It's like the eight mile that I wanted. Um, you know, so I'm I'm really hey, don't excited about it. Don't go knocking on it. eight mile. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great movie. It is a great movie. I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say that. But but this, it, you know, it's it it is a it's I don't know. It's a mashup of a little bit more of a of a um, you know a character that I would never expect to be in this world. And it it appears from the trailer to take that fish out of water experience, you know, and and subvert it uh in a way that I find really satisfying when films do this. When you take the fish out of water, but you make the the fish actually an intelligent and compelling uh participant in the new world that they're exploring. And I, I'm very excited about the the possibilities that come in that uh story. Uh Jeremy Gasper, uh all all I can say is I I liked the video, uh the video work that he's done for Selena Gomez and Florence and the Machine. Um uh, and that's about it. Didn't know that he did it until I looked at his credits. But it turns out he's, he has done those two videos, and I like them both. So uh,
1: there you go. Well, I will say the the, the shot that I love the most, or the moment that I just think totally just won me over, as if the trailer hadn't already done so, is the moment where Grandma in her wheelchair like puts the little face mask down so that she can help. She can pose in the photo that they're taking of their group. <laughs> it was it's just totally. Fantastic. Great stuff. Absolutely. Well, this, uh, like I said, it's been kind of a festival hit since the beginning of the year, starting in Sundance and South by Southwest. And it's just really made its way uh, around doing a lot of festivals. And it's going to have a U.S. opening August 18th, and then France the 30th, UK September 1st, Sweden October 6th, and Germany November 2nd. That's all the release dates we have so far. But definitely going to check this one out when it comes out.
0: My trailer, Andy, is Landline. Uh, From director Gillian Robespierre and and writers uh, Gillian Robespierre and Elizabeth Holm, uh, along with some other folks, uh, stars Jenny Slate, Finn Wittrock, John Turturro, Edie Falco, uh, uh, Jay Duplass is in it, um, uh, along with uh, a couple other faces that uh, were really fun to see in this movie. It's a story of of, uh, a teenager living with her sister and parents in New York. And uh, it is clearly a story of coming of age and coming to understand her relationship with her sister, and then they discover that their father's having an affair, and it becomes kind of a fun, weird detective story uh, as they try to unravel the the relationships and and um, uh, you know read the emails and explore the the sort of hidden hidden corners of the of her, her father's world, and I. I found it really intriguing. It's a mashup of stories that I, I really enjoy. I mean, I like the, the weirdness and the comedy of the, of, of her navigating the world as a, as a teenager, kind of trying to figure out who she is in the space. I love the way she is, um, you know, she, she's trying to understand her relationship with her sister and her mother in particular. And John Turturro is, uh, always a treat to see on screen. I love this guy. And, um, uh, so, you know, the whole movie, I, I think it's it had me really curious, uh, which is, again, it did what it needed to do as a trailer. What would you think?
1: Yeah, that's what I would say um, I felt after watching this. It, it piqued my curiosity. I, I think the story looks pretty interesting. It, it could be something that may end up kind of... Um, not working for me, but at the same time, I loved the characters. I thought that it was an interesting family dynamic going on here that I, I thought it was a really interesting, um, story element to blend the, the daughter who's, um, engaged to be married to someone that she's not that keen on marrying, um, struggling with that while also struggling with this idea that dad might be having an affair and, uh, Kind of the perspective that that puts into her head and, and into the viewer's head of, of how people get into these situations um, is kind of a really interesting story element that I, I hadn't seen before. It actually opened up potentially some interesting angles. And so I think there could be some of that in here. And you're right. John Turturro is just always fantastic. He looks great in this. And, um, I mean, it looks like an interesting thing. It might be more of a renter for me, but it still was something that piqued my curiosity.
0: Uh, It's been circulating on the the, uh, festival circuits over the last uh, half of the year, uh, and it opens for us in the United States July 21st, 2017. So it's coming right around the corner next month. We have no release uh, for anywhere else. I'm sorry. Oh. He's a man from outer space, and we're taking him to his spaceship, Andy.
1: In this quiet neighborhood, on this tranquil street,
0: a mystery is unfolding, and an adventure is beginning. I'm
1: keeping you E T phone home. E T
0: phone home. E period T period colon the extra dash terrestrial, Andy. Steven Spielberg.
1: I believe that's a hyphen Pete. Come on. Get it straight.
0: You know, you're right. You're right. I appreciate that correction. Here we go. E period T -t 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 period colon the extra hyphen terrestrial.
1: Now you're talking.
0: Good? Now you're Good? talking. Okay. Yeah. All right. As long as we we, we need to get it right. Uh, this is the 1982 film, if you haven't heard of it, from director Steven Spielberg and writer Melissa Matheson. Stars D. Wallace, our friend D. Wallace, who gets top billing because she's our friend. That's right. And she called us wussies. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, the young Henry Thomas as Elliot, uh, Robert McNaughton, Drew Barrymore, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, see Thomas Howell. I throw him in there because I like him. Oh ah, yes. Uh, it's fun to see uh, him. You know, there's some others there's some other great people it's a great great little cast and it is uh if you haven't heard of, of what this film is about uh it's a story of a of a boy who's having some trouble in the world and he befriends a friendly alien to help him see it through and uh and uh, it, it turns out this movie was was reasonably popular uh how did it hit you yeah. on this watch
1: This is a movie I can watch anytime and it just totally sweeps me away. The magic of this film is, uh, is uh, something special. I think, you know, it's, I, I want to get into a, a brief conversation at some point. It doesn't have to be this second, but about the idea of filmmakers who make films that are uh, really kind of focused on emotion versus films that are more of an intellectual type of film. Because some people in a in a uh, uh, Facebook group that I'm in were talking about the balance between the two, and is it uh, are are films that are more emotional that tap into emotion are they more overrated because people get emotionally invested in them does that uh, mean that they may not be as good but people think they're good because they're emotionally invested and you know i kind of uh, disagreed with that point quite a bit because i feel like you know there's there's a real strength to filmmakers who know how to tap into emotion within people and find that connection i think it's a very important thing and i don't think just because it's emotion that you can dismiss it uh, because it's not intellect. And uh, Spielberg, I think, is a very smart filmmaker. And I think he knows how to use the smarts that he has in making his films um, and and has plenty of smarts in his films, but also knows how to tap into the emotion. I think he balances quite well, even if sometimes he does do a little bit more of the emotion in his films than the intellect. Um, I think this film um, taps into the emotion that I have very easily. It always has Uh, It's just a beautiful story. I feel like it's just a very honest story, really interesting characters and what they're going through. Going back to Melissa Matheson and what we talked about last week with The Black Stallion, how she really writes um, this just honest sense of people and characters. And everything here just feels really honest and interesting and engaging. Um, it's, It's an easy watch. It's a great one to watch with the family. And I had an amazing time.
0: I feel like you just dropped 15 different things for me to respond to there and that's a little <laughs> bit unfair. I <laughs> I got to go back first to Let's this. Rewind. In, Let's rewind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, please. This intellect versus emotion uh nonsense that your your so-called friends are spouting. What? Uh can you can you give me a contrasting film? I assume ET is the film that you're using as the anchor for the em- filmmaker uh, as emotional conduit angle.
1: That's yeah, that's what I was using okay. now. But I mean people so, were talking give, specifically. Give me the intellectual
0: and can you do it with a Spielberg film? Is there a Spielberg film uh that, that is uh that it tends to be more intellectual? Munich.
1: Oh I good. Munich. Okay. I, I'd even say AI if we're sticking sticking specifically to films. Would, yeah. I would go AI versus uh ET. Now AI has some emotion in it and some some of that stuff doesn't work really well, and I think that has personally I feel it has a lot of story issues. But I think there are a lot of interesting intellectual things happening within that film. Um, you know. So I, I think if you, if you look at Spielberg versus, with, just specifically for intellect versus emotion, I think those are two very good directions you could take.
0: I am having trouble not really hating that question. Why do people go to movies if not to connect first emotionally and then intellectually? It's why the form exists.
1: To a certain extent, I mean, I would argue that there is a a value in what filmmakers can do, um, to explore thought, and I think there are plenty of intellectual films out there. I mean, look at 2001. That's a much more of an intellectual sort of film that I find very intellectually stimulating, engaging, interesting, exciting. I love what that film does. I don't know if I connect emotionally to it, but I love thinking about that particular film. Um, there are plenty of filmmakers who tell those sorts of stories. They may not be the ones that the masses go to. Uh, they, I think that they are very um, just smart. I, I think that the filmmakers... Are exploring ideas. And I love that aspect of cinema as well. And I, I, I struggle personally with people who like to uh, segregate so much and just say, you know, I, I prefer the intellectual sorts of films. These emotional ones are garbage. I think that there's value in both. And that's my argument is that it, there's an incredible value in both types of films.
0: It's bunk. It's not emotion. It's the bunk, Andy. The whole point. Even I, like, I disagree with you uh, categorizing 2001 as a strictly like a an intellectual film. I can't connect with 2001 unless I am connecting with it first emotionally. Unless I am dealing with the sort of technical the, the despair uh, at the coming wash of technology. Right. That's an emotional response. Right. That that is uh, like that is a a deep. Emotional response and and it doesn't even I can't even open the door to thinking about what the film is about until I am engrossed in it at some emotional level. I have a really hard time imagining a film that that succeeds that doesn't offer me a connection, an emotional connection first. I I can't. I can't picture it. Well, that's good. That's why I the think... whole the whole conversation is it, it. It's it's kind of a ridiculous thing. Uh, you know, I I I think this ties right back into E. T. It opens the emotional door absolutely. And to your point, Melissa Matheson is exceptional at writing, as we talked about last week, particularly very human, heroic children. Right? I mean, the relationships that these kids have, our ability to as even I, I find myself as an adult put myself in my kind of 10-year-old self watching this movie thinking man I could have been that kid I, that I wanted to be that kid he was aspirational for me uh, that, that that is a, a true gift of her uh, you know her of hers as a screenwriter and Spielberg in capturing this particular segment of kind of white middle class suburban America Right? that 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 it was that was real gift of his at this period of his filmmaking it's really where he was coming from and so that obviously connects very strongly with me but I think it's my, my hunch is it's a more universal picture um, you know than just the the, the cultural uh, pieces of it but the real issue for me and, and the question is and I, I will say this with a preface that this is still a five star movie and a like for me it is at the very top of of some of my favorite film lists it's it's just great but when watching it, This time around, when the film changes course from, uh, you know, halfway through the film from the wonderful childlike wonder of the experience of meeting the alien and learning the alien and language and all of this great stuff to here we are, the, the feds have come in. And there is perhaps an expectation of a little bit more uh, sort of filmmaking pragmatism that is not on display. It maintains the sort of frivolousness from the first half of the film and applies it to uh, the feds. Does it maintain its that that sense that that sort of emotional connection once you are once you are presented with this sort of odd um, kind of worlds collide uh, montage or of of experience in the last? Uh, half of the film, I, you know, I think there is a, certainly an argument to be made about how we uh, perceive the film through the eyes of these kids and from the perspective of these kids, and I think that absolutely that that maintains, in fact, and may be a driving factor behind why we are why the adults are portrayed the way they are in the end of the film. Uh, but it, it's something that really struck me, and I'm not sure how well it landed this time
1: I, I guess I have no problem with that I, I see what you're saying how they might be a little more uh, big and cartoonish and certainly not always acting like perhaps FBI agents should I, I guess I just don't have a problem with that. I feel like they're they're honest enough within context of the story being told here. I mean you're right if this was uh, zero dark 30 sorts of FBI agents we'd be watching a very different uh, last half of the movie. Um, and I don't think that's exactly what we're going for here. I mean, it is something that is for the whole family. And so I think it's a little bigger. And I think the the actions may not be as accurate as to how they actually would have been portrayed. So I, I, I don't have a, any issues with that. I think it all works very nicely. In fact, if you look at something more recently like Monster Trucks with how the uh, the feds were portrayed in that movie, I mean, it's just it's cartoonish and embarrassing in that particular film. And I think what they did in E.T., yes, it, it was bigger and it fits within context of the family story that they're telling here and this world that they've created for this particular film. Um, but it still is more honest and um, allows for a, a better sense of a realism, even if it is from the kid's perspective. So I, I think it works nicely and I, I, I'm i glad that it is the way it is. Well, not, it, it... not Zero Dark Thirty. Yeah. <laughs> I'm
0: so glad E.T. is not Zero Dark Thirty. (laughs) Very different movie. I don't think I, I disagree with you either. And in fact, you know, I watch the movie, I watch it with my kids and their their sense of just love for the film all the way through. is. I just go back to this argument of emotion intellectualism. And if there is a sense in intellectual filmmaking that there's an expectation of emotions to open the door, but at least some intellectual anchor to hang your hat on while you're actually watching the film, that's where E.T. may be criticized in uh, for me. That That may be an area where not including more of the pragmatic, uh, you know, not including an area of the more pragmatic Feds that we have come to uh, expect is a shortcoming in the film, and and allows those who expect to who who have cold, dark uh, stone hearts. Uh, w- would actually not connect with this film at all. <laughs> They're dead inside those people.
1: It's it's an interesting um, way to kind of approach the film and just look at it. But I, I do feel that Melissa Matheson is the screenwriter here writing this kind of this whole concept that Spielberg had really come up with um, just, she tapped into the whole concept of this, the, telling this story that is much more from the younger perspective. I mean, look what Spielberg did in Close Encounters. I mean, it was a little more realistic in that particular film, but it was designed for an older audience. This wasn't designed. I mean, honestly, actually, you think you you listen to Spielberg talking about this film, um, it sounds like they were really not expecting it to do much. They were kind of expecting it to be kind of this. This uh, this film that uh, that uh, moms would take their kids to and that would really kind of be the only audience that would go see it because kid films weren't as huge at that particular uh, period of time. And they they everyone was kind of looking at this as this kid's film and Spielberg was kind of making it and and, and having a great time making it. But he was in their back of their minds. I think they're all kind of like, well, hopefully people like it, but it's probably just going to be some kid's film. In context of what they are really doing in their world building within the film, I think they were um, telling it honestly.
0: I, I agree. And in, in that light, when you look at things like the feds rolling the giant, you know, rolling tube that is actually designed to be collapsed <laughs> to carry on a truck, <laughs> but they're rolling it up the street <laughs> in order to make it, makes it for a
1: pretty shot. We want it's backlight, shot, <laughs> There is
0: full of that just ridiculousness in the, the unnamed and generally silent feds, right? They are—this they are, th- this film, I-, I couldn't help but think of this film as Jaws with aliens, except for the feds or the shark. We never see them, and when we do, they kind of break down. <laughs> Melissa Matheson, yeah. uh, this—she it they, she is— Often, I think, credited with this being a a, a film that she wrote her first draft and it became the shooting strip, which would make you say, wow, that's impressive. What? really happened, as I gather it, is she would write a bunch, she would write for five days straight, and then she would go workshop with Stephen, and then go write some more for five days straight, and workshop a whole bunch with Stephen, because this was so much of it was his story, uh, it, it was a story about uh, his family, the imaginary friend that he invented in the 60s as his uh, family was divorcing, it was a story that he was planning on making and uh, growing up, an idea about his divorce, uh, the family's divorce when he was a kid, um, it, and a combination of, uh, you know, being disgruntled about, uh, not wanting to have Close Encounters have a sequel, but also not wanting anyone else to make it. So trying to find a way to navigate the studio waters there. And, and she ended up taking this hodgepodge of incredible ideas and turning it into a, an, an organized story quickly. I don't know if it's fair to say it's first draft.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, that's kind of a, a rough way to describe it. I think it's one of those fun production stories that they're going to always tell the rest of their lives. It's like, right. that's the best first draft I've ever read. Right, uh, but there was a lot that went into that first draft. and But, you know, it makes for great storytelling, and it it's exciting. And so I can see why they like to spin it that way. Um, but that being said, I will say, uh, you know, coming off of The Black Stallion and then this, I think Melissa just as. This type of storytelling she does uh, connect with very strongly. And just knowing that she had been, like when, when Coppola met her, that she was like a babysitter... It just yeah. makes sense. Like, she, the fact that she knows how to connect with kids on their level. And what was interesting watching some of the behind-the-scenes footage is that she was on set all the time, like, kind of working with with Stephen if they were doing any rewrites or whatever. She was kind of coaching the kids on their lines and working stuff with them, and she would pull stuff that they would say and integrate it into the script and everything. So she was always around and always, like... Being a part of things, and i I think that's a a real just a benefit to have a writer involved in that way in the script and i don't I know it doesn't happen that often, but um just what a i think just a blessing in this particular case for Melissa to be around um to help Stephen really kind of continually modify this as the story progressed
0: yeah certainly a gift to have her on set and that he understands the value of having the the screenwriter on set uh, right. which you know. Is, is a bit of a rarity. You know, the genesis of this film, I think, is really interesting. And I don't know that I'd ever put together, uh, you know, where all these ideas ended up filtering out into uh, Stephen's canon. That this script, along with this commissioned uh, script that he had John Sales write for Night Skies, uh, which was, I gather, supposed to be that, sequel of Close Encounters, the, the proposed sort of, you know, could have been sequel where one of, you know, the aliens were terrorizing a suburban family and one of them befriended his family's son. Uh, I, I'm not sure I understand the difference between that and this other idea where, um, you know, the perhaps one of the aliens from Close Encounters didn't actually make it back onto the ship and stayed on Earth, and that became part of the story. Uh, but in the end, it essentially sales ideas uh from Spielberg from Night Skies ended up being split uh at the id. <laughs> so the happy part <laughs> uh, became the befriended son uh, of the befriended son and the alien became E.T. And the terrorized part became poltergeist. Uh and and in you know that that sort of uh sibling uh relationship between those two films makes much more sense to me now.
1: Yeah, it's kind of an interesting blend. It was a very interesting time for Spielberg to be balancing uh, these particular two stories, uh, Poltergeist and E.T., just totally different uh, (laughs) types of filmmaking. um, And two fantastic films that he was involved in in one way or the other. So maybe one day we'll talk about Poltergeist on the show. I thought it was interesting, and I had never heard this, that there was potentially some, uh, some plagiarism um, Satyajit Ray, an, a, a director from India, um, had a script from 1967 called The Alien, and he said that, um, that there were copies of his script available around the U.S. And uh, it was, I guess, close enough that he felt that Spielberg had read it and uh, plagiarized his script. Um, Spielberg denied the claim saying he was just a kid when the, when the script was apparently around and there was no way that he would have done that. Um, I honestly have no idea. I've never read it, um, that particular script by, uh, Satyajit Ray, but, um, but Scorsese and Richard Attenborough both kind of pointed out how there seemed to be influences from the script in the film. So, I mean, it piques my curiosity, I just, I, you know, I don't know, knowing kind of Spielberg and just the way that he comes up with these stories, I kind of feel like, you know, it probably was just Spielberg and just kind of coming out of his brain off of uh, Close Encounters. So, I, you know, it's just one of those interesting things. It doesn't look like it ever amounted to anything, but it is an interesting little bit of history about the particular story that I had never known.
0: Uh, when you look at Spielberg as a director, uh, boy, I-, I feel like this is a film that, Really exemplifies where J.J. Abrams gets his love of flare and
1: backlighting. <laughs> right?
0: Holy cow.
1: Well, it certainly is something that Spielberg has done a lot in his career and has um, kind of continued and uh, perfected because you see it in in most of his films. He really loves that look and the smoky, the smoky room and everything.
0: Very smoky room. In fact, did you notice when Henry goes and turns or Elliot goes and turns on the faucet to do the dishes in the opening sequence, just how quickly that wall of steam climbs up the window that's like six feet wide? (laughs) Right. Every no. one of my, every one of us watching that movie, we're like that's not a sink. That's not how that works.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and Spielberg also another little trick that he does quite a bit is uh, he really loves using reflections, and I love how he's always playing with those and figuring out ways to do some really interesting tricks with them. There's a fantastic, fantastic one that I liked in this film. Um, later, in when Keys is uh, in his little spacesuit and he's talking to Elliot, who's sick in his bed. And you have keys in his glass helmet, looking down at Elliot, and you see the reflection of Elliot in his, uh, like on his uh, face, uh, on the on the glass over his face. Uh, as so you can almost have the conversation between the two uh, people in the one shot through a reflection Just a beautiful image and I love how Spielberg really plays around with things like that um, and it just it's, it's a fun way to tell the story and talking about kind of that intellectual and emotional way of telling stories I think that he's so smart in the way that he directs uh, shots and puts things together it's just it's masterful and uh, you get things like that they just it happens and you don't think about it. But it just it's there. And when you're evaluating the film and you're looking at it um, later, you see those things and you realize just how smart of a filmmaker he is.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and how instinctive. Right. I mean, he's he trusts his instincts. He didn't storyboard the film. Uh, directed with a script on three by five cards, just so he could change the order of things on the fly. He's just incredibly adept with a camera, and I find that I, you know, I'm, I I watch this film, and as you know, as as sort of light as we say, it's a kids film. It is such an a a fantastic example of, of uh, you know, well healed direction.
1: He's also somebody who knows how to work with kids, I and mean, he's done that plenty in his films. And smartly, they uh, decided to shoot this as chronologically as possible so that the kids could really kind of develop this emotional attachment with this, this alien character. And help them with their emotions as the story uh, got to its conclusion, which is just a really smart way to, to do that. You know, paying attention to these young people who may not be able to tap into their emotions as well as adult actors and find the right way to tell the story so that it helps them actually bring those emotions forward.
0: Let's talk about First Shot, Last Shot.
1: Yeah, for our first shot, we pan across the night sky, which is clear and full of stars, and we go down onto a skyline of a dark woods lit by a low blue cloud cover. and Then we cut to a wide shot of the alien craft.
0: And then the last shot, that very alien craft departs, and it leaves a rainbow skitter across the sky, uh, and we cut to a close-up of Elliot watching the sky as the blustery trail of presumably toxic alien exhaust waste is is washing over him. And then we cut to credits. trails, Yeah. Comtrails. <laughs> 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 Elliot is forever ridden with a horrible alien cancer.
1: <laughs> That's E.T. Uh, part two. That's the part two, right? Yeah, I think right. it's just it's 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 just a, a nice uh, kind of a bookend of the story. You know, we have the the arrival of the aliens, the departure of the aliens, but it's not so much just you know arrival and departure. Now it's kind of the connections that they've made, and we end on this shot of Elliot as he's kind of watching. Them go and it's just it's emotional and you you feel like you are Elliot watching one of your best friends leave and it just they I think they found a nice way to bookend it in a way where you really uh, have the connection of these visitors.
0: See, Andy, it's emotional. Absolutely, I agree with you. I think one of the things that I love so much about. The way she writes for kids stories is the the way she we, we enter and exit the fable and uh, in this case opening on a dark woods what what more symbolic way do we have to enter a fable than a dark and nameless woods uh, and then to see the the bright lights of the alien craft and these little alien doodads moving in the in the bushes there is uh, such mystery and wonder in that experience that that is the opening of the Book of Fairy Tales, but this one's about aliens. I, I think it's terrific.
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: Casting by Jane Feinberg, Mike Fenton, and Marcy Learoff. And they brought us... Okay, we're going to start with Dee Wallace again, as mom.
1: Oh, yes. I mean, this is just uh, such a a wonderful and touching performance uh, from Dee that, you know, it's always connected with me. And maybe it was because my parents were divorced probably around the same time I saw this uh, shortly after my parents divorced. And I think it just always kind of stuck with me. You know, she always has kind of seemed kind of like a mother figure for me. Um, uh, mainly because of this role. and it's just it's so interesting to watch her now as an adult and see the emotions that she goes through over the course of this and the struggle she's going through as a as a newly uh, single mom uh, after her husband is kind of left with this other woman from Mexico. and just the 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 um, the interesting way that she's written where she's not necessarily it's it's kind of like that place where she's she's, She's obviously a good parent, she cares for her kids, but she's also distracted. she's uh, maybe a little selfish and and focused on herself because of this place that she's in now. Um, and I think that's it's it's just really touching how uh, how she brings that to fruition as as the mom in this particular film.
0: i I couldn't agree more. And talk about this this point of efficiency in screenwriting right with D Wallace's character of Mary because she ends up conveying so much in so little by way of talking about the uh, dad who's in Mexico with the other woman her reaction to uh, the repeating refrain of Mexico he hates Mexico uh those little tiny lines that tell you so much about her as a character and her relationship. And actually, by the time you get to Mary, walking into the bathroom and meeting the the ailing E.T. for the first time, her decision to take those kids out of the bathroom and run them downstairs makes sense. And being so reactionary to that E.T. would, would uh, you know, I think without understanding who that character is, being so reactionary to the ET wouldn't make as much sense because we want to have more of a, sol- a relationship of solidarity with the alien because of what we've had with the kids and their relationship with the alien. But because we know so much about her and her emotional state at the time, the level of protection that she's kind of exudes over those kids as a result of where she is in her marriage, I think it just is, it's just perfectly portrayed. It reminds me right back to watching, uh, uh the, the mom, pivot in the conversation on the black stallion about whether she's going to let him ride or not it's a little tiny scene with a character that is hardly in the film and yet because of what we know of the character and incredible efficiency in developing that character on screen we actually have a connection with her when she makes that pivot and and uh, i think the same is said for mary
1: and then of course you have the you have her three kids uh, uh michael and gertie and uh I mean, it's just, it's a perfect little trio and, uh, you know, Henry Thomas leading the, leading the troop as, uh, Elliot, what a, what a wonderful, uh, performance he gives here. So, uh, just perfect for what he needed to do. And, uh, I just, I love watching him in this film. It's, it's just, you get a sense that this is really like, I mean, it's, it's like an old soul doing this performance. He just, he's so strong in what he's bringing to the table here.
0: I was amazed when I watched his improvised audition tape. They brought him in to audition and didn't give him a script. They just said, Here's the deal. You are being approached by an authority figure who wants to take the alien away, and your entire job is to not let him take the alien away. Go. And uh, one of the casting directors, I, I think Mike Fenton, was uh, the voice off screen. And It's kind of a slow burn, but you watch him over the course of just a few minutes go from uh, a sort of blank faced kid to weeping and begging for him not to take the alien that he can't take the alien. Please don't take the alien. And, And it is such a powerful turn at the end of the clip. It's just a three minute clip. You hear Spielberg off screen say, "Okay, kid, you got the job. And that is a really moving bit of audition tape and, and film lore for me.
1: I, I think it speaks to why Henry Thomas got a good number of roles after this at the time I mean I always remember him in Cloak and Dagger for some reason that's the other movie that yep. you know is permanently ingrained in my head with him as a kid and then Legends of the Fall it's like in my head he goes from that to you know being a grown-up in that movie and it's just such a funny jump but I and I know he's been in plenty of other things but it's it's just funny the things that end up sticking with you
0: it's totally funny and to see him in these other movies it feels it feels out of place I'm sorry Henry, it just feels out of place. <laughs> uh, P- uh, the other kids, Robert McNaughton, is big brother Michael.
1: Uh, you know, he was the perfect big brother. I think that uh, his reaction when he first CZT and and just things that he does like these guys feel like real siblings that like when he's when elliot is making him promise and he's doing his little yoda voice he's like oh you have absolute power just mm-hmm. it's like, "Oh, these, these are kids this feels like a real family i loved that that they really got that right and robert mcnaughton was just uh so great and uh just the i think it's something that I had kind of forgotten about um, in the film, but when he goes on the search to find ET after ET um, gets lost in the forest, and he finds him in that in the the riverbed, and oh, it's just like uh, that's a moment that just kind of hit me. That's like a kind of a powerful moment for Michael to have to deal with is finding this really sick ET down there, and it's just like. It's, it's kind of a frightening thing for i mean he's only what like 14 or 15 in the film um and it's just uh, putting that in his head is like God, that's that's got to be a really kind of terrifying thing to have to confront as a as a child and i mean i thought he really did a great job here
0: it's strange that he hasn't done more, you know? Like, you look at his, his credits, and it's, uh, you know, few and far between. He he came back and did Frankenstein versus the Mummy in 2015 and Laugh Killer Laugh in 2015. Uh, otherwise, it's a bunch of TV uh, throughout the 80s and then a long break. So, obviously, at some point, he made, uh, I, I don't know what happened, you know, conscious choice or what, but uh, he he didn't do much else. Drew Barrymore, on the other hand, has been very busy. She was the first of the kids to be cast as young sister Gertie,
1: and uh, another just perfect example of a child actress just doing everything right. She was just brilliant in the film, and I mean, I know she's a six-year-old, but she she's just honest, and and Spielberg captured all of that really brilliantly. And Drew has certainly had her ups and downs throughout her, her career, and she's uh, you know kind of gone off the deep end a, a little bit. And uh, I love how she's kind of pulled herself back. And the stuff that she's been cranking out, uh, you know, in the last uh, you know, decade or so, I really enjoy just her presence on screen now. And she's just a, you know, I don't know, she's just one of those people I've always connected with, and it's probably because of this film.
0: Yeah, oh, I absolutely agree. This between this and Firestarter.
1: And irreconcilable differences.
0: <laughs> yeah, but mostly Firestarter. That was that was the big role. that <laughs> I, I was the one I wanted more than anything else. Yeah. Uh, uh, see uh, uh, she got the audition uh, largely because she lied to spielberg she said that uh, she wasn't an actress but she was a drummer in a band Uh, i thought that was amusing and he thought that imagination needed to be in the film man did they play her in this movie told her that the et was real Flesh and blood and that she had to respond to it uh, accordingly. And so when she's surprised by it, that's a that's a pretty legit scream in the film, uh, according to the lore.
1: Well, I and I heard that she she had kind of a sense that it was fake, but she she just in her head, she thought it was real. And she just kind of, you know, didn't fully get all of that stuff. You know, I think it's hard as a six-year-old. And she would be reacting to it because it was reacting to her. And I think that's really an interesting way to kind of uh, uh, take that and and just process it as a kid. And she said it in her head now, you know, thinking back to when she was young, she says it always seemed to her like it was kind of a guardian angel on the set. And so I think that's kind of an interesting uh, way that she ended up approaching E.T., and yeah, that moment when um, when they do the uh, electric paddles on ET's chest, and she just kind of jumps out of her skin—it's just a—and just bursts into tears. It just oh. it just really tears your heart out.
0: Heart wrenching. Yes.
1: Uh, Peter Coyote as Keys. I love the um, the way that Spielberg chose to tell the story and have it really from the kid's perspective, and you don't necessarily see any of these adults. It's really kind of Charlie Brown type of filmmaking, where you get adults' legs or adults in silhouette, other than, other than mom, who's kind of a little bit kiddish herself, but all these other adults are really just like legs down sorts of things. And I love that you don't get to really see that it's Peter Coyote until an hour and 20 minutes into the movie. We finally get that great reveal when he comes through the door in his, in his suit and he kind of lifts his head up and you see him um, behind the, behind the um, mask. It's just a, it's a, a great way to kind of play the story um, and keep the adults out of it until the kids are kind of forced into that world. Or I should say the adults kind of take over the kids' world.
0: Yeah, I I agree, and he's he becomes sort of the uh, the vessel for the adults, uh, but does so in a way that's that's charming and kind of sweet and and understanding at least as as if he has uh, more of an empathetic uh, position in the film. He was discovered uh, Spielberg met him when he auditioned for the role of Indiana Jones. Uh, Apparently, during the audition, he walked in and tripped over the lights, uh, the cabling for the lights, and uh, it. That clumsiness didn't didn't go over well for that role, but he Spielberg recalled that for this and liked that clumsiness and the sensitivity uh, in, in for keys in this.
1: Yeah, pretty interesting.
0: Uh, and I already mentioned C. Thomas Howell. I don't really have anything to say about him. I just like seeing him as a kid.
1: I think that's great. Um, it reminds me of The Outsiders, which uh, is yeah. another great uh, kid performance of his. I will say, as far as the kids go. I want my own um, red ball cap that says Camus on it. Yeah. I just cracked up every time I saw that <laughs> hat. I'm like, what is that kid doing wearing that hat? It's just fantastic, and it speaks so truly of the weird things that kids would wear. But I was like, I totally want that hat now. <laughs> uh, I totally agree.
0: That's awesome. Uh, the, the primary voice of the alien, I think, was Deborah Winger.
1: Uh no, Deborah Winger was the voice um, during the early cuts. During all like the the, uh, she came in and did all the lines for Spielberg when they were, um, kind of cutting it together. Mm. And so only only people really saw, uh, or really heard Deborah Winger doing the voice of ET. If you saw some of those early cuts, um, okay. there might be a like a little bit or piece here or there of Deborah Winger left in there. But for the most part, it's all Pat Welsh. Who is the voice of ET? She's somebody who I guess really wanted to be an actress. It just never ended up working out, and somehow um, they just they ended up connecting with her and they loved that kind of sound of her voice, and they had her do it. And um, it, she only has like two credits or three credits on IMDb. This, and then she was also Boosh, the voice of Boosh in uh, in uh, Return of the Jedi or Boush, <laughs> and uh, something in like 1940. So her career is. F- Pretty thin and widespread, uh, but um, she has a great sound, and I love the the voice that she has here. But it sounds like the the sound department really did a lot of work on ET, and it's like you know there's 18 different uh, contributors, whether it's people or animals or just you know a random uh, crew member who belch as well to, th- to throw in for ET's belches.
0: That was Ben Burt's UCLA sound design instructor to <laughs> professor. Know. Who burped? I think that's fantastic.
1: Oh, it's so funny! <laughs> just so funny. Uh, but I also love that. I guess Deborah Winger is just an old friend of Steven Spielberg's, and I love that um, she actually ended up in the film. She's the the uh, the nurse zombie who's carrying a poodle when they're going trick or treating. <laughs> oh, that's Deborah Winger walking by, folks. So there that's you awesome. go. I didn't
0: catch that. Um uh, and, and Melissa Matheson was in the film.
1: Yeah, she and her beau at the time, Harrison Ford, both were in it. She was the school nurse and Harrison Ford was the principal, but I guess they were both cut. They're in a, a deleted scene um that I, I didn't look for. Um I wonder if it's actually in the uh special features. But it, um, it's
0: actually it's it's there. And in fact, in our show notes, Andy, if you click on the link for Harry, Harrison Ford, Elliot's principal, you will go straight to see and see it. And it's very strange because it's very clearly his voice, but you only see his hands and his shoulder. Like they never show his face.
1: Oh, it's like the opening of of Raiders. (laughs) Yeah,
0: isn't that isn't that interesting? So uh, I I think it's a fascinating, uh, uh, it's fascinating actually that it was cut. It's kind of a a weird scene out of context. Uh, A lot of telepathy and telekinesis going on. uh, That's that's out of context. We don't really know what's going on, but. It's fascinating to see Harrison Ford in there. And so uh, check that out in the show notes if you're interested. Um, and, and I'll also put in uh, the improvised audition uh, tape. That's also on YouTube. So I'll put a link to, to that too. So uh, if you're interested, swipe over to the show notes. Let's talk about getting it
1: made. Yeah. Um, Spielberg uh, started working with Kathleen Kennedy. Around this time, and uh, this was kind of uh, you know where she kind of got a big start with all of this uh, sort of stuff. It's crazy looking at her filmography and how I mean she was an associate for Spielberg on Raiders the year before, and she was assistant to uh, uh, John Milius on 1941. So she was kind of in the loop already, but to go from like those roles to as her first producing credit. ET, <laughs> how does that yeah. happen? I mean, talk about just being in the right place at the right time and being an incredibly smart producer. I mean, she's obviously produced herself time and time again with the projects that she's done with Spielberg and uh, everybody else. I mean, she's just a really kind of uh, quite a producing uh, genius, I would say, and has done just some amazing stuff. I mean, just go through her filmography as a producer, and it's just, it, it just is. Amazing, amazing film after amazing film. Ninety-two credits on IMDb. Just a, a really interesting woman, and uh, I, you know, I don't think. Uh, I mean, she did a great job handling this project, but again, I don't think any of them knew what they had uh, gotten themselves into. And I, I think that uh, um, <laughs> it's it's great to see how it grew after this.
0: Cinematography by Alan Davio. Is that how you say it, Daviao? <laughs> I think it's Davio. I just, I just, we'll never know. <laughs> what do you think of the camera?
1: Uh, great stuff, uh, Alan. I think is a is a really solid film uh, cinematographer and uh, has proven himself plenty of times in a lot of great films. This film clearly has just some beautiful, beautiful work. Um, He's done, you know, Spielberg seems to kind of click with certain uh, cinematographers for certain periods of uh, his uh, filmmaking career. I think this was the first film they worked on together and then they did uh, um, Twilight Zone, the movie, and some amazing stories, stuff, and Color Purple and Empire of the Sun. And uh, then I think that was it. I don't think they ended up working together after that. And um, but I think they created some incredibly beautiful uh, work, and the work here certainly speaks to that. I um, just one shot that really kind of got me excited to see is the amazing vertigo. It's it's almost like a vertigo reverse vertigo shot, which is really cool. You get this shot of the town from the kind of overlook, and it you get the kind of um, the dolly in zoom out. As we kind of pull back and it makes the town all of a sudden uh, a kind of retreat in the background as all of a sudden you realize there's all these FBI agents searching up at the top and then you then you land on keys and then you do the whole thing in reverse and you you end up with this incredible shot of of keys standing there over the the town as all of a sudden the town gets like compressed behind him and under him as if he's like this, this dominating force ruling over it. An incredible shot that uh, it just, you know, I love seeing Spielberg do the vertigo shot that he pulled off in uh, Jaws and that to see him do it like this really interesting uh, way where it was kind of a double, uh, just even cooler.
0: I, it is very cool. Uh, it felt that, Sequence in particular, and, and actually I should say just about everything with the the feds uh, in the first half of the film, whenever we cut to them, felt very much like Poltergeist to me. That's where it, it just anchored to me. Those scenes, and that shot in particular felt so much like a shot in Poltergeist. I can't put my finger on it, but I want to see it again just just because of the—it just feels— so close in tone and, and that's one of the things that i go back to this sort of sibling relationship between these two films it it has a visual style that sort of mimics the non-horror stuff uh, it, it looks like poltergeist they look related to me in a way that that you know uh, i i see I, I can't think of another pairing of films that feels like that that isn't part of a series
1: yeah, it's interesting and and certainly there's been uh, speculation about how much uh, Spielberg really had a part of in um, Poltergeist, but I guess yeah. it was a contractual thing where he, you know, Universal wasn't going to they were not going to let him direct two films in the same year, and so that's when he brought Toby Hooper on to direct Poltergeist and then right. he just produced it. It certainly sounds like he was around on set a lot on that film. I think that was done while ET was in, in kind of the the final stages of development and in pre-production, um, uh, but I mean Spielberg himself says, you know, it's it's Toby's film. Toby uh, directed it. He made the choices. I was there. Toby allowed me to be there and and kind of play with some of the creative that was going on. But it is still very much Toby's film. I think that's a you know an interesting uh, relationship that they ended up creating on that film, making a fantastic one. But it, it's it was it's, hearing that it was such an odd thing for Universal to say no you can't have two films directed the same year so you can't direct that one too it was kind of just a weird thing I I don't know you don't hear that very often at least nowadays
0: it it feels very much like Toby Hooper directed Steven Spielberg's film and that's it that's just the visual tone the visual style of the film the way the camera moves the with the decisions that were made it feels like a Steven Spielberg film to me say what you will Steven Uh, Production design, James Bissell, set decoration, Jackie Carr.
1: This was an interesting film. You don't realize watching this film how much of it is on stages. All the forest stuff um, is just, you know, anything with really E.T. moving around was on a stage because they needed to have the whole stilted set so that E.T.'s parts could all be kind of making him work. Uh, underneath really interesting that um that it was designed that way i mean it, it makes perfect sense it's just as a, i have never thought about it in context of being a, a stage film it always feels so very present in its locations i think they did a great job kind of designing all that in a way where you don't even realize it or you don't even think about it
0: totally agree i think it, it was just lovely particularly in the room it feels like so appropriate uh feels so solid it feels so connected to the neighborhood outside the transitions were great um uh, not not a complaint but now we got to talk about the effects oh yeah uh, beyond just uh, obviously production design and building the sets the effects to bring the alien to life uh, apparently, it was originally going to be uh, uh, Rick Baker uh, and Steven Spielberg had a lot of trouble. Rick Baker apparently had sunk a lot of money into uh, work for Night Skies, and they, uh, he and Spielberg, when that film stalled, uh, he and Spielberg had had uh, had words, and they broke up. And so it went to Carlo Rambaldi. Uh, Rambaldi, we we know he did the mechanical head effects of the xenomorph in aliens and uh, visitors from close encounters. And uh, um, so uh, lots of good experience. And that that brings us uh, the alien.
1: E.T., I love him. Just such a great alien. And it's funny hearing them talk about it while they're making the film. They're like, I mean, he's... He's so ugly, they're like, I don't know if people are really going to connect with this little alien thing very much because he's such an ugly little thing. But (laughs) sometimes those are the things that you connect with the most. Uh, You know, we were talking about this a little bit with Oakjaw in that particular trailer and these these creatures that these uh, filmmakers create that are kind of ugly creatures. But when you spend time with them and you kind of, get to know them and they have a personality and, and, um, they can really win you over. And ET certainly did that. I mean, I had an ET shirt. I had an ET lunchbox. I had just everything I could get with ET on it when I was a kid, because I loved ET so much. And it's just, it's, it's, it's such an amazing creature that they came up with. And I, it makes me pine for, um, that sort of, uh, character in a film that has such a presence on screen maybe it's just the 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 fact that it was a a physical element that was on screen people were reacting with as opposed to just a cg thing i mean that could be a part of it but i i mean you know i i love et
0: it's the yoda challenge right I love E.T. too, and I love the physicality of it, and I love the presence of it. There's something about it on screen that you, I just don't feel with a CG character that I know is CG, uh, and and we got to see Yoda make the really awkward transition from being a physical present um, puppet to being a CG model, and I, it it's not the same. It didn't I go would've...
1: well. I would I would disagree with you. I would argue that Yoda made a great transition from the uh, from the puppet Yoda to the CG Yoda, but was really hampered by a really terrible and I don't know why a really terrible puppet Yoda that they used in Phantom Menace. It was the worst puppet creature I had seen on screen. It was so bad that puppet Yoda was an embarrassment, and I was so glad when they digitally replaced it. <laughs> You're like a traitor to your own aesthetic. Do you remember that? It was I I love those physical elements, but I don't know. They had already done a great Yoda. Why couldn't they do a great Yoda again? That was the worst Yoda. The Yoda Halloween costume in E.T. looked better <laughs> than the physical Yoda puppet in The Phantom Menace. It was so bad.
0: Wow. The only scene I can think of, I can imagine right now is the last scene in The Phantom Menace where Yoda is talking to uh, Obi-Wan and is kind of walking across the room. I remember very little of that film. Every time I see it, I forget more of it. Uh, and so I can't, I, I honestly feel like I'm incapable of having this conversation with you. All I can say is by the end, by the lightsaber battle with Count Dooku, I had lost faith in Computer Yoda. Uh,
1: Well, I don't know. I'd much rather have that Yoda. I thought they did actually a pretty good job. I still would prefer the... Empire Strikes Back, Puppet Yoda, or the E.T. Halloween costume Yoda. Or the (laughs) E.T. Halloween
0: costume Yoda. Okay, that's not the movie we're talking about, but clearly maybe it should be on the list. Uh, Back to this. Uh, Ralph McQuarrie did the spaceship, said it was supposed to resemble a hot air balloon designed by Dr. Seuss. I love that. Uh, And, um, uh, you know, the handwork. I didn't know this. Caprice Roth. Roth? I'm going to go with Ruta. There's no umlaut. (laughs) but I do enjoy the flair. It was a mime and was hired to do close-up handwork for E.T. to make the hands feel more sensitive. I like that. Yeah, and I...
1: I watched some of the behind-the-scenes footage before I watched it uh, on this latest uh, uh, round, and you really start getting a sense of that. When E.T. is grabbing the pot or, or pulling a little pine tree out of the thing, You can I, I started really going, okay, I can get a sense. This is where the mime was doing the work here as opposed to the puppet. It's It's pretty interesting to pay attention to that.
0: They, they had three actors uh, in, for, for any of the wide shots and the walking shots of E.T., they had three actors. They had Tamara Detroit and Pat Bilon. Uh, they are little people. And Matthew Demerit, who was a 12-year-old at the time who had been bored with no legs and walked on his hands when he was in costume uh, as E.T., Fascinating. I did not know that. Did you see any behind-the-scenes
1: footage on that? I did, and it was the 12-year-old boy who is the one that they had to play drunk and fall down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's, that's yeah, dark. Go, go for the kid. You're the, you're the drunk one. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. It's the darker side of Steven. You know it would be funny? That's right. Followed by Steven Spielberg's ideas.
1: <laughs> right, exactly.
0: <laughs> okay, can't talk about E.T. without talking about the terrible, terrible, terrible decision of the uh, uh, Mars Incorporated companies who decided not to allow them to use M&M's in the movie. Right. Oh, you dopes. (laughs)
1: And now Reese's Pieces are one of my favorite candies. Hello,
0: Hershey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this was it, right? This was the beginning of Reese's Pieces. It was their newest creation, and they were looking for a uh, looking for a, a a quick start. It was to compete with uh, M and M's, and they agreed to pay a million bucks for the rights to promote uh, the use of their product in E.T. and that became when that became the alien candy of choice it became the candy of choice for millions of children everywhere
1: that was probably in, the fastest million dollars earned back yeah right <laughs> for, for immediately
0: investment. saw they they say that they reported a, uh, a a 65% increase in profits on reese's pieces within go ahead guess the time
1: i'd say a week <laughs> two
0: two weeks two, two weeks, weeks after the premiere 65% increase in profits on reese's pieces yeah And still, I still
1: eat them every time I go to the (laughs) movies. I love them. Do you really? Oh, I love Reese's Pieces. I don't really eat them every time I go to the movies, but I wish I could. (laughs) Oh, man.
0: If we weren't going so long already, I'd really want to dive into your candy of choice at the movies. Uh, But we're going to talk about that later. For now, let's talk about Carol Littleton, who did the editing of this film.
1: Yeah, just solid work. I just wanted to point out one quick uh, edit bit that I have always loved in this film. And it's the moment when the the kids are on their bikes and the cops or the FBI, they have the guns and they're in the street and uh, they're the kids are about to be shut down. And then you get the music building and then you get that slow push on Elliot's face, but then it cuts and then it cuts. And, and every time it cuts, it jumps a little closer and jumps a little closer. What a way to build tension. I have always found that one of my favorite bits of editing in a film, and I I think it works so effectively, and I I just love it. Kudos, Carol and Steven, for coming up with it.
0: Absolutely agree. And one of the reasons it works so well is because she doesn't do any of those kinds of tricks elsewhere in the film.
1: Yeah, right. It's not overdone.
0: Right. John Williams, if this wasn't the best Indiana Jones score, I don't know what is. (laughs) I don't even know what that means. Come on, tell me you weren't thinking of Indiana Jones the entire movie. This was the period where he was he was writing very uh, thematically similar scores.
1: I don't think it's similar. I I think it's it's its own unique entity, and I've never thought. I mean, obviously he composed both of them, and they were a year apart. But I I, I don't feel. <laughs> That emotionally, they are going down the same path. So I've, I, while they sound like John Williams, certainly, I've never gone, oh, this is totally Indiana Jones.
0: I am stunned, sir. Shocked and awed. I almost want to recut the movie with the Raiders score. I don't think you would notice. <laughs> I, think you, I, I think I could. Even after we have this conversation out loud, I could send it to you and you would say, oh, I love the E.T. score.
1: You would like to think that you could do that, but they are so different. They are so vastly different scores. The themes in this one—I mean, the, the two main themes—are you know are just just such beautiful themes. And it's yes. Just just incredible, incredible bits of music, and I mean, if anything, I'd say it's probably kind of like the the FBI theme that you're feeling might be a little more on the e, the Indiana Jones side of things. Um, but the there we go.
0: But, you're getting there. You're getting there. Not, See how similar not, they are? They are so different in to use your language that they actually come back around to become the same again. That's how different they are. They're so different. They're the same. Andy, you just said it. I'm okay,
1: moving on. Totally different. (laughs) I love it. But John Williams, he, he, I mean, this was big stuff. This was the time when he was coming up with some of these just most amazing themes of his career. And this was one of his, uh, just a huge, huge album for him. Um, And it was just, uh, you know, it was just... The the I mean it, this was his fourth Oscar win I mean he um, really uh, did just a great great job with the score coming up with just some of the most iconic music ever just the the E T theme and I mean pairing his music with the shot of of Elliot and E T flying through the sky I mean uh, right in front of the moon I mean that's just it's so iconic that Spielberg ended up using it for his company it's just such a such an incredible moment in cinema. And you'll always see it in any sort of, um, you know, compilation of great movie scenes, because it is just such an iconic moment. And I think a lot of that comes from uh, from what John Williams did with his score here. And leading into the awards, I mean, John Williams certainly received his share of the booty uh, for this particular film. And, um, I, you know, well deserved, I think. But, you know, he wasn't the only one. I mean, the the film had 51 um, wins and 32 other nominations. At the Oscars, it had nine nominations and four wins. It ended up winning for Best Sound, uh, Best uh, Visual Effects, Best Sound Effects Editing. And uh, Best Music Original Score. I thought it was pretty fun that for both the Best Visual Effects and Best Sound Effects Editing, they ended up uh, competing against and beating Poltergeist, Spielberg's other little film. Uh, And then, like I said, John Williams won an Oscar, his fourth Oscar for Best Score. It was nominated also for Best Picture best director, best uh, writing, screenplay written directly for the screen, uh, best cinematography, and best film editing, all of which lost to Gandhi, the big uh, kind of the, the award sort of film that uh, that it was competing against. I, I haven't seen Gandhi in so long. I really can't compare the two, but uh, personally, ET' is the one that's always been closer to my heart. Um, but going back to uh, the subject of this series, Melissa Matheson, she had, uh, for this particular uh, script of hers, she had three wins and four other nominations. So um, she did pretty well. She did win at the WGA Awards uh, for Best, uh, best uh, uh, Original Screenplay. And I thought it was interesting that at the, the 2000 uh, PGA Awards, the Producers Guild Awards, um, Kathleen Kennedy and Steven Spielberg were entered into the PGA Hall of Fame because of this movie.
0: And not a day of golf between them. <laughs> Look at that PGA jokes,
1: folks. That's oh, what we're here for. That's why we're here. Uh, why Why is there no ET sequel, Andy? I wish more filmmakers acted the way Spielberg did. They tried, you know, the Universal. Of course, everybody wanted to make a sequel, and they really were struggling trying to come up with something. They had an idea, but Spielberg finally said, "You know, it's not going to work. It's it's just it's not coming together." And then he said, "It, it just ruin what we already have. It would do nothing but rob the original of its virginity." And I wish more filmmakers would say things like that about their films instead of all these, this glut of sequels and prequels and everything else that we have to deal with right now.
0: Film definitely spawned a lot of other stuff, though.
1: Yes. Do you remember the uh, the E.T. Uh, uh, storybook album from uh, 82?
0: That I don't.
1: It was Michael Jackson narrating it. Uh, Quincy Jones produced it with music by John Williams. And it came out the same year. It actually came out the same month as Michael Jackson's Thriller, which I thought was really interesting. Um, That it was like these two things, the big things for, um, you know, cultural icons that ended up uh, kind of hitting at the same time. And I guess it actually created a lawsuit that I thought was interesting. Um, Epic, that uh, released Thriller, um, said that Michael Jackson could be a part of this, but they had these stipulations uh, for MCA that it could not be released the same month um as thriller and it could not there's a song on the album called someone in the dark and it could not be released as a single mca broke both of those conditions (laughs) they released it the same (laughs) month and they put someone in the dark on an on a uh on a single and uh there was this uh i guess this big lawsuit and uh and mca has uh, had to like pull all their copies um mca was banned from ever working with michael jackson and uh, the this song "Someone in the Dark," they had to get rid of all those uh, those copies and everything. And I guess that the promo copies that they made for "Someone in the Dark" they've become one of Michael Jackson's rarest, most sought after records. Some selling for over fifteen hundred dollars. <laughs> Oh my God! For, for a single of this one song, and it, I guess the song ended up getting included as a bonus track on the uh, 2001 special edition of Thriller. So it is out there now if you do want to hear "Someone in the Dark." But I don't know how easy it is to find the the uh, the album. I think it would be kind of a fun thing to track down, but I've never looked.
0: That's funny. Yeah. Uh should we talk about the the 20th anniversary release of the film. It ended up being pretty controversial.
1: Uh, yeah, it was it was somewhat controversial. I think it was just uh Spielberg kind of doing his own thing that uh kind of his own Lucas so to speak. I mean, if you watch the 20th anniversary, I didn't watch it um for this. I watched the original but this is the one that, you know, the controversy really was around him, you know, changing things that he felt were a little, uh, he wouldn't have made those decisions uh, if he had made the movie today. Like when the FBI agents are blo- about to block the kids, they all have shotguns. And then he changed those to walkie-talkies for the for the um, re-release. He also changed when Michael was dressed as a terrorist, he changed the line instead of terrorist, I think they made him... Uh, I can't remember what they called him, but it wasn't a terrorist. And so those were kind of like the the some of the bigger talked about things. But they, mm-hmm. they did more CG work on E.T.'s face so that they made his mouth move a little better. They added back in the scene where uh, E.T. takes a bath. They had problems on set of doing that because the E.T. Um, figure... Uh, was got waterlogged and it just kind of the whole thing started falling apart when it came out of the tub. So it never worked. But they they had shot the whole scene. It's kind of like the Jabba scene from Star Wars. They they had the scene. They just didn't have the effects, and so they added that back in. And then Spielberg wanted to add back in moments where uh, ET was like um, running instead of just the little red light behind the bushes zipping along in the beginning. You actually see ET hopping along, and I mean they they made him look like he moves kind of like a gorilla. And it just never seemed like that's how E.T. should actually move. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, just a lot of those things that I was not that keen on. So I'm very happy that Spielberg, unlike George Lucas, uh, makes his um, both versions available. So you can, you know, as long as you know what you're looking for, you can find the right version.
0: Yeah. And and he has been fairly adamant about his position on that, you know. And, and, And this is the part that I like and I think you... Uh, resonate with too Uh, in 2011 he said you know there's going to be no more digital enhancements or digital additions to anything based on any film i direct hallelujah Uh, thank you Uh, when people ask me which et they should look at i always tell them to look at the original 1982 et if you notice when we put out et uh, we put out two ets we put out the digitally enhanced version with the additional scenes and for no extra money in the same package the original 82 version yeah yeah hallelujah uh, obviously, this film was a success. Uh, how did it do in the numbers?
1: Yeah, Spielberg's uh, personal little alien film only cost $10.5 million to make, which is about $26 million in today's dollars. Incredibly impressive for what we know it to be now, but probably quite a bit more than Universal would have liked to spend considering they thought it was just a kid's movie. After some successful previews and an explosively positive reception in an out-of-competition screening at Con, the movie was released June 11th, 1982, with only Grease 2 as its competition. (laughs) Uh, Funny funny pairing. Um, In case we didn't uh, say it uh, enough before, this movie did blow up, far exceeding everyone's expectations. It ended up remaining number one at the box office domestically for 12 straight weeks. Then it danced around the top 10 for the next 45 weeks. Only slipping out five times (laughs) and hitting number one again five other times as late as its 25th week in theaters. So, yes, December, it was still hitting number one. All in all, from what I can tell, it looks like it had a domestic theatrical run of 52 weeks. That's right, a full year in the theaters. (laughs) I know. Wow. Uh, Including including a 1985 re-release and its 20th anniversary rejiggered release, it went on to make just over 435 million domestically and almost 358 million internationally for a total of almost 793 million or 1.974 billion in today's dollars. In 1983, it flew past Star Wars as the highest-grossing film of all time held on to this number one spot until Spielberg's Jurassic Park knocked it off in 1993 globally, and then Star Wars reclaimed its spot domestically during its special edition re-release. E.T. has provided the third best return on investment that we've talked about on this show so far, just behind Mad Max and Gone with the Wind, making 75 times its budget back. And also third when it comes to the highest adjusted profit per finished minute, just behind Gone with the Wind and The Exorcist raking in 16.6 million adjusted per minute. All in all, this little alien sure proved it knew how to touch people's hearts and showed the world once again that Spielberg was a cinematic master.
0: That is amazing. 52 weeks.
1: (laughs) One year. They
0: do not do that anymore.
1: No, they don't.
0: I think it's time, Andy. It's truly time. We've got to rank it. Let's do it. Head
1: over to flickchart.com
0: slash the next reel, or you can just swipe over in the show notes and you'll see a link to Flickchart right there. You can just tap on it, it'll take you right to this movie. You can add it to your collection, and let's see how it stacks up next to
1: ours. First up, ET, or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? ET, please, Andy. ET for me. ET, or Raise the Red Lantern. Oh, ET I'll for have me. A little dose of ET. ET, or 101 Dalmatians. I'm going to go with E.T. another E.T., yeah. E.T. or Children of Men. I'm oh, going to go Oh, definitely with ET. E.T., yeah. E.T. or Groundhog Day. I'm oh. still going E.T. Yeah, I think
0: so, but it's getting harder.
1: It is getting harder. E.T. or Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Dr. Love. <sighs> I'm going to say E.T. E.T. <laughs> Can't say. You can't say E.T.
0: Dr. Strangelove ge-
1: is your favorite movie, Andy. No, Brazil is my favorite movie. Dr. Strangelove, I, nope. I was on the fence if it might be uh, my new favorite movie, and I don't think it ended up quite being there, but it is way out there. But e. So now you're saying it.
0: that E.T. is ahead of it, and Brazil is still, well, I guess we shall see.
1: That's right. We shall see.
0: Well, I'm Dr. Strangelove on this one.
1: Well, let's do it then.
0: All right, here we go.
1: One, One, two, two
0: three. three, rock.
1: Scissors. Oh, you crushed there me. There you go. There that you go. hurts. There you go. ET or seven? Seven. Uh, seven, yep. Yeah. yeah. So, sorry, ET. ET or Serenity? ET for me. Uh, I'll give it to ET. Look at that. ET is now number seven, just behind seven <laughs> on our, <laughs> our Flick chart list. Shouldn't seven be seven? Seven is six. (laughs) Seven is six.
0: (laughs) That's great. That's a good place uh, for it to fall. And and it's the right place. Anything higher would have been a a travesty. I'm glad Uh, someone was here to stop that. Oh, uh, yeah. I have it I I already broke uh, broke ranks I told you where I am it's been on my letterbox for a long time now so it, uh, the secret is out it's definitely a five star um, and a heart for me at letterbox absolutely. Com slash the next yeah
1: absolutely same here it, it uh, it's just really close to my heart and uh, I really love this film so definitely five stars and a big old like
0: uh, I I think uh, we just have the one more film in our That's Melissa right. Matheson series yeah uh, and what is
1: that? We're going to be wrapping it up with Martin Scorsese's film Kundun. It's going to be a very interesting film to talk about. As if we hadn't uh, said it a few times on the show in the past, this is a tricky one to track down. So if you do want to watch this and uh, then tune into the show, make sure you start hunting because it it can be a challenge.
0: Absolutely. Check your library. That's uh, probably where you're, you're going to find it. Yeah. Yeah. And while you're doing that, uh, I, I'm going to go to bed.
1: All right, man. Well, you know, I heard a noise out back. I'm... Uh, I'm gonna go out and lay on the chaise lounge out back with my flashlight and, uh, you know, see if I can spot a little ET of my own.
0: Amazon, uh, Amazon giveth, Andy.
1: As Amazon always doeth.
0: Uh, it's, it's tough to find low star ratings for this movie, but we did manage to do it.
1: We did. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, we did.
0: I, uh, mine was, uh, mine was more therapy. If, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to go first. Yeah, go for it. This is a uh, one star and it's very, very simple. Uh, from A- april 7th 2017 very recent uh viewing and the review is terrifying tried to watch it to get over my 26 year long phobia and just couldn't do it
1: so it's like failed therapy
0: <laughs> yeah it's like, truly it's this like is therapy therapist- that didn't work Yeah, Yeah,
1: therapist said to go try this, and it didn't work, and now they're going to be in therapy for another 26 years. Right,
0: right. Of course, maybe because uh, they were watching it, you know, Clockwork Orange style with their eyelids peeled open. That's why it didn't didn't take. What's yours?
1: (laughs) Well, I got a two-star by an owner who says, E.T., go home. I had (laughs) forgotten how ho-hum this movie is. Maybe only kids should judge it. When I, this is where it gets, uh, uh, help me understand this one, Pete. When I was a kid, bicycle ETs were no good. On the other hand, three-story high grasshoppers eating Chicago was cool, but that's just me. What? (laughs) When I was a kid, bicycle ETs were no good. On the other hand, three-story high grasshoppers eating Chicago was cool, but that's just me.
0: Wow. <laughs> I don't I don't know what to say to that. Uh the uh, so the grasshoppers eating Chicago. That uh, I there's a there's a movie in there, you know, that's uh I I m- my sense is it's uh beginning of the end uh from 1957.
1: I don't know, but I typed grasshoppers eating Chicago into uh, Google and it just came out. Where to eat insects in Chicago? <laughs> the best, best grasshopper restaurant in Chicago. Clearly, I need to uh, define that uh, search a little better. Well,. I this is this is the write up
0: of I uh, start P- uh, Peter Graves so this was a real thing uh it's about an agricultural scientist who successfully grown gigantic vegetables using radiation unfortunately the vegetables are eaten by locusts uh which grow to gigantic size and attack the city of Chicago it's generally recognized for its quote atrocious special effects and considered to be one of the most poorly written and acted science fiction motion pictures of the 1950s so there is that (laughs) there you go so Uh, here we have somebody who says bicycle ets were no good uh and grasshoppers eating chicago in what is widely considered to be one of the worst movies ever made on the subject is actually cool
1: says a lot doesn't it but that's just me Thanks, thanks amazon
0: i've been podcasting since 2006